This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today with me on Everyday Theology, I have a real pleasure of having someone who I've followed along with from afar uh, via Twitter, via the internet world, and super stoked to have her on the podcast with me today. I have with me Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, So thanks so much uh, for being with me today, Karen. Hello, it's good to be with you. Just to let our listeners know a little bit about you, um, Karen, she is a research professor, professor, I can't speak today, professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, written multiple books, some very like great books, uh, including one that I want to discuss a little bit today on reading well, finding the good life through great books. And uh, you did your PhD work at State University of New York at Buffalo and we're so glad that you are with us. Um, would you mind letting our listeners know a little bit about you? Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I am a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm actually just starting there um, this current school year after teaching for 21 years at Liberty University. Um, so I live in God's country in uh, central Virginia in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, so I just um, love it here. So I um commute to teach my my classes on campus at Southeastern, which is in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And uh, I spend the rest of my time writing, running very slowly, uh, and uh, um, just, you know, enjoying uh, uh, reading a lot of books and writing about them now and then. And I spend far too much time on Twitter, um, but I think of Twitter as kind of a, a mission field. And so <laughs> <laughs> I, you can find me pretty easily there. So when I'm not reading, I'm tweeting. <laughs> oh, I'm... I'm with you. Uh, it, it, for me, it can be a bit of an addiction and I've got to step away. Uh, cause I will spend a lot of time, um, giving some hot takes on Twitter probably <laughs> far too often. Um, today we're going to be talking about just what you are uh, a professor in, in Christianity and culture, especially in light of, uh, reading and in light of thinking and critical evaluation and, we're in such a strange time and of course everyone says that right like we're in such a strange time and i guess maybe every time feels a bit strange but i don't know this is a pretty strange time <laughs> <laughs> this one's pretty this one's pretty strange and there seems to be a lack to me of kind of critical thought and evaluation and learning and understanding and 
you've written on this idea of reading well and thinking well. And I just want to hear from you, if you wouldn't mind, um, what, what got you into the thought process of writing a book on reading well for that very reason? Hmm. Wow, there's so much ground I could cover in just this one question. So I, I actually want to start with what you said about it being a strange time, because yes, maybe everyone thinks that, but we really are in a strange time, especially when we put our time in the context of the thing that I, I love and think about and write about the most, and that's books. Um, we've lived in a print culture, a literate culture, a culture that is informed and shaped by books and reading for, you know, my math isn't good, but, you know, several hundred years, for four or five hundred years, this has been what has defined our age, the modern age is reading yeah. and book. And we are entering now a stage, I, you know, I don't think books are going to be eliminated entirely, but we're in a digital age where we can read, but we tend to read tweets and sound bites and blogs. If we read at all, we're listening to a lot of podcasts, which is absolutely fine. <laughs> and we're, seeing, you know, we're watching a lot of films and TikToks. And so we actually are transitioning, I think, from some, a chunk of human history that was about 500 years long into something else. And when I was writing on Reading Well or, or preparing to write a book, um, I I had been teaching already for, you know, a decade or more, teaching English at a university to, you know, freshman students and and English majors and even uh, graduate students in English. And I had noticed that when I first started teaching, especially in a Christian environment, um, it wasn't so much I, – I, I had to actually convince my students and my audience to read good books and to read widely. But then as the culture started to change and, and, and there were all kinds of different mediums that were overtaking people's minds and thoughts, I realized that it wasn't that they were really afraid to be exposed to ideas outside the Christian bubble. That was not a problem at all. But just even when people were reading, because there are lots of blogs and tweets out there to read, um, they weren't reading well. Hmm. And so I shifted yeah. – you know, from my first book, which is about reading widely to writing one on how to read well. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's really interesting to me, this kind of issue of reading well. And so maybe my next question would just be, what are some thoughts on reading well that will help us to think well? That's a great question. And I don't think that we can actually um, separate out reading well and thinking well. I mean, there, of course, are lots of different ways of, of knowing the world. I mean, we can know the world through our senses and we can know the world intuitively and through emotions and um, through relationships. But um, for Christians, especially who are a people of the book and who worship a God who is the word, um, the gift of language, the gift of reading is something that reflects the way that God relates to us because he came mm -hmm. to us in the form of the word and he reveals himself to us through his word. And so when we read well, we're not only like learning the information or having the experience that's in those words, but we're also cultivating the very 
way in which God chooses to relate to us. There's right. A, yeah, there's a great passage that um, that just sort of changed a lot of the way I thought about things when I first read it so many years ago. It's in um, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. And early in the book, uh, I mean, it's, it's just basically his expansion of, of the communications theor- theorist Marshall McLuhan's idea that the medium is the message. And Postman is talking about this transition from a literate to a post-literate society that I talked about earlier. And Postman, who was not a Christian, um, but came from a Jewish background, talks in the book about how the God of the Old Testament in um, in making the commandment not to make graven images was suggesting something about the way that he wanted his people to worship him that was well, that was dramatically different from the pagan surrounding cultures that worship through images and idols, because ours is a God of the word and he wants to know us and reveals himself to us through the abstraction of language. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really a fascinating point, especially when we start asking this question that I think becomes the, for me at least, and kind of my sphere of my work, the major issue is, how do you interpret things well then? If you're not given the the symbol like perfectly in front of you, now all of a sudden this, there's an interpretation game, right? Absolutely. I mean, reading requires interpretation. Um, I mean, even just the letters of you know that we have that are symbols, and then the words that they make and the sentences. Um, and interpretation is central to the act of reading and central to the act of being a believer um, in a in a faith that is centered on the word and and in, in which interpretation is everything. I mean God God demands that we interpret his word uh, and he gives us his word to do that. And so all the reading that we do is actually a practice in interpretation. And and you know I, I'm in a field that's gotten very progressive and very liberal for a long, long time. And there are lots of different schools of interpretation. And some of them are just political agendas. Others are reflections of kind of postmodern worldviews. Um, and, you know, some of them have something to offer, but ultimately, um, it's really important that we, we employ interpretation approaches that are faithful to to the text and that actually seek to understand what the text or the author is attempting to say and has to say to us without doing violence to the text or without imposing ourselves and our wishes and will on the text. And that's, you know, that that's actually, if you think about it, that's something we have to practice even just as decent human beings with other right. human beings. Right. Um, so reading just sort of reflects all of these things. When the Maybe this idea is new for a lot of people. So if you can kind of riff on it for a little bit, just explain it. When you said this idea of doing violence to the text, what do you mean by that? And how can we actually do violence to a text? Hmm. Well, I mean, in, you know, freshmen and sophomores in college classes uh, can do this a lot and do it easily <laughs> uh, just by sort of reading a, a 
a, a book and, and writing, you know, reading a poem or a short story that might be assigned. And I'm not, I don't mean to pick on them, but, um, you know, as, as an English professor, we see this a lot where we'll, we'll have a student write about um, a poem or a short story and they really aren't even reading it carefully enough. Like they might mistake a word or leave out a passage and making an interpretation. And then they just kind of let run away with, you know, what this work means to me or what it reminded me of or what I think it means or, um, you know, any one of those kinds of formulations that are so common and and without really paying attention to what the words actually say and the kinds of um, in, the different information and an interpretation clues that a work of literature gives us. Um, it's not just about what a work reminds us of or what it makes us feel like or what we would like it to say. Just like a human being that's there in front of us, we have to sort of try to understand the whole thing as best we can and not right. impose, you know, our own assumptions or project our own, um, you know, our own biases and prejudice, prejudices and wishes on a person any more than on a text. It would seem to me, and this is anecdotal at best, but my years of working in a university as well and teaching, it would seem to me that the very people who would often claim to be afraid, not afraid, but push back really hard against postmodernism because they would often equate postmodernity and relativism as the same thing, um, have now begun to employ that same relativism in nearly all of their readings, whether it's scripture reading or their reading of tweets or Facebooks or whatever it might be, that the one thing that we used to push back against as a whole within the Christian faith has now become employed. Do you think I'm off here or does that sound about right from your understanding of reading, much more learned understanding of reading as well? No, I absolutely agree that uh, that we are seeing in much of the Christian community some sort of postmodern, deconstructive, relativistic approaches to reading one another, to reading tweets, to um, gaining information and making analysis. Um, now, this isn't necessarily you know, done because people realize that's what they're doing. It's because we're actually in this postmodern culture um, that is defined by fragmentation and polarization. And we're, you know, and we've got Russian bots that are kind of an algorithm that are directing our attention and, and, and over determining our, the direction that we'll take in our our reading and interpretation. So there's a lot that we're up against, but we're actually being played by some of these very forces that we warned against. And even something as simple as the example you brought up of just kind of seeing someone's tweet and making the worst interpretation of it and sending it off out into your own Twitter feed without even having, you know, making sure you understand what the meaning and intent behind the words were. That's about as postmodern as you can get. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I know you've done a lot of work in this. How does that kind of reading affect us as a culture? Well, of course, it just simply increases the polarization and the fragmentation that's already there. It's like it's kind of cycling and spinning out of control. And again, because some of it is the result of forces that are beyond our own conscious desire and intention, like you even mentioned, um, and I think we all 
struggle against this finding Twitter addictive? Well, it's because there actually are um, techniques and technologies used by those in who create it to make it more addictive. And so it's not entirely our fault, but we have to recognize it and be intentional in battling against it. Um, and that, you know, I don't know what all of the solutions are, but I think part of it is, it, at least it begins with recognizing what it's doing to us um, and recognizing it as a tool that we need to use and not be used by. Hmm. And sometimes I ask this question for a lot of my guests, where's the hope? Because it definitely, I don't know, for me, it just seems like I don't see any rays of hope of where the kind of the bright spots, your Twitter feed, others' Twitter feeds, where I get to see people who are reading well and critically, you know, deconstructing and reconstructing things in helpful ways. Where's the hope for our culture in, in this, in learning how to read well? Well, you know, I actually find a lot of my hope in looking at what has happened in history before. So when I get really anxious and um, uh, lose hope about what we just talked about, what I just described, um, I remind myself that in the 17th and 18th centuries, when the printing press was making printed material widely available and more and more people were learning to read, there was a lot of anxiety about the misinformation that was being published and the way that people could not tell fact from fiction. I mean, actually, the novel arose in the 18th century as a result of this sort of blurring uh, the lines between um, between fiction and nonfiction. And so, but eventually, you know, eventually, as more and more people learned to read and print culture became more sophisticated, uh, our our civilization learned, we learned how to deal with it. We, we became wiser and more sophisticated, kind of in the same way that now we shudder to think about how there was a time when the automobile first came out that people would ride around without seatbelts on. And now we think about <laughs> that with horror. How could they have done that? Well, in the digital age, we're in that kind of like driving around in these automobiles without seatbelts because we, we haven't yet really reckoned with the power of this digital machine, but we're learning, we're growing, and we will, we'll, we're going to see the mistakes that were made. And we'll come through this with a, with a better knowledge of how to handle and harness this great technology that we have. But right now, we're living through this very weird time that we, we talked about at the beginning. That's a really good analogy. And I think one that, you know, I haven't had in mind before this kind of learning, learning the technology via the history of print, I think is really fascinating. It does make me wonder though, especially if, if there's any, you know, examples from history, from your work, you know, I think of this week and and this podcast will come out, you know, a little bit later from when we're recording it, but I see a ton of people jumping ship off of certain social media platforms and going to another one that's supposed to be quote unquote free and it's not stopping any misinformation mm-hmm. or anything of that. You know, are we going to be able to really kind of learn how to put seatbelts in this car mm-hmm. when we can just go find a new platform that allows us to mm-hmm. misinterpret and broadcast again? 
That is a really good question. And it's something that concerns me as well. But again, I think if we look at history, um, we can, and not so far back in history as the 17th century, we can just look back in, um, you know, in America in the early 20th century, when uh, there was a retreat that Christians underwent um, following the loss of the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, that's really when uh, a whole population of Christians kind of separated themselves out from the culture and and um, and and retreated into the, a fundamentalist enclave, and um, and didn't emerge for another, you know, almost another century. And so I think there's a cyclical aspect to these. Um, changes in culture and to the the Christians or the Christian culture's relationship to the larger culture. Um, so it's not really anything new, I don't think. And those of us who care and want to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past can have the opportunity to, to look at this history and to uh, learn from it and hopefully to, to learn how to better fasten those seatbelts in this automobile that's, you know, that's kind of spinning rapidly out of control as we, um, as we race into the future. For that purpose, I think I've got like a multi-part question here that are kind of related. You know, how do we ensure as people, like for, even for me, like this question is actually a serious question that even though I've done you know, a lot of time in the academy, I'm always questioning, you know, my own self. I have this little bit of skepticism, right? Um, how do we ourselves make sure that we are reading well with the lens of, of getting over these confirmation biases and these echo chambers and these ways in which we, you know, will jump ship just to go find people that say what we want to hear? And then the second part of that question is how do we help others learn to do that as well? Hmm. Good question. So I would say, first of all, when we're, we're thinking about avoiding confirmation bias and getting sort of a range of views, we've got to get, we've got to think about getting off of the internet to do some reading, read some things that are book length works because books take longer to publish. Well, not all books, <laughs> but um, <laughs> we have books get published pretty fast and have pretty short, lef- short shelf life these days too. But read, read substantial books by people, hopefully books of, you know, from longer ago than last month, um, get a broader, wider perspective. And then when you are doing the quick reading of, you know, the news or the latest take on the news, um, you just have to, again, be intentional about reading, um, good sources that, um, that, have good thinking writers or, I mean, it's not that hard to find. You just have to maybe look for them and reading different perspectives. Um, and you know, that's one of the things that I use social media for is, is sharing some of those articles that I find or books or reviews or so forth. So we can encourage that sort of thing in our own spheres. And, you know, even on social media, again, use that, that tool or that technology for good instead of letting us be used by it. So then how do we kind of on that second part of there, you know, how do we help others? Cause I, in light of the recent events, you know, I see, a lot of millennials, especially, you know, posting these stories about, 
the sadness that they feel that their parents or someone from their parents' generation has begun to, you know, engage with QAnon and conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and, you know, just reading things on the internet and just accepting them. And they don't know how to, I don't know if help's the right word, but they don't know how to kind of push back and, and kind of provide a better perspective to say, mm-hmm. you know, if we read things better, we won't be, you know, subject, subjective to these conspiracy theories and things we just find quickly on the internet. Mm. Yeah, that's a good and hard question. Um, it is it, it is heartbreaking and infuriating to kind of watch people do this. And, um, you know, I think that we, we, we have to be mindful of the fact that there are underlying reasons why people fall prey to this or to or get become enamored with these theories and um i guess just a couple of things come to mind when we have the kind of relationship we can just gently ask questions like where did you hear this what's the evidence for this um and 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 gently push people to kind of maybe co- realize uh, by asking and answering these questions that they they can come up against the limits of of these sources. Um, and then we can also just try to understand what's fueling it, um, what fears or anxieties or inadequacies. Uh, might be fueling this. And also something I have to remind myself because I know I have my own biases is that, um, you know, the mainstream media that I tend to um, turn to the most definitely does have a bias and does, um, does overlook a lot of, of things that maybe could be reported just as much as the things that they do report. Um, it's really just a matter of, of being patient with one another, especially when we're talking about family relationships and friendships. Um, we have to be the ones who who value the right things more than being right or um, in the short term or and not be willing to sacrifice relationships just because of this kind of societal crisis that we're going through right now that will end or and will change and will become something else at some point. I like that idea, especially of patience, because it's so easy to not be patient mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to, to Facebook and Twitter. I mean, I can throw off a tweet mm-hmm. so quickly without even stopping to ask myself, should mm-hmm. I tweet that, right? Mm-hmm. Or should I respond to that at all? And probably, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I found, and I, I didn't even really do this on purpose at first, but now I am doing it. Um, I found that when someone presents me with a claim, and these are even some mainstream claims that get repeated and recycled over and over, um, I just simply ask, and or someone will say, I read an article that said this, or I saw this. I just simply ask them if they can link the source. Um, and I would say out of the, out of 10 times when I ask that, at least nine times out of 10, either the, they won't be able to come up with the source, they can't find it, they can't remember it, or the source that they will link says something else or itself doesn't have um, adequate documentation. Um, and so I'm amazed. I mean, and I really, you know, we have to be genuine. Like, I really do want to know the source for that. Um, and so almost every single time um, they can't find it. And so that just 
show, you know, so you're, we're not, I'm not being hostile or confrontational or argumentative and asking for that, but they maybe can recognize that they don't have a evidence for the claim either. Yeah. Which I want to kind of go back to something you said a little bit prior because I, I, I liked it and I want to hear some, some thoughts on it. You said to kind of go back and, and read some in terms of kind of learning how to read well and kind of think through kind of reading, you know, go back and read some, some older books, some books that took a little bit longer to publish that maybe aren't quick consumption texts. Um, what, what are some of your favorite that you could say, Hey, these are some great texts that might challenge thinking might kind of push you to, to have to sit down with it, maybe even sit down with a dictionary and read it a little bit. <laughs> what would be some of your favorite ones? Well, of course, I teach English literature, so most of my favorites are um, are, are works of literature. Um, and I think you know a lot of, of theologians and a lot of uh, uh, of thought leaders and influencers in the church or pastors, a lot of them sort of think that fiction is frivolous or not as important as other works. And I mean, I love philosophy and theology and read that as well. But I think that some of the great works of fiction actually have so much more to teach us about human experience, universal questions, unchanging problems, and also require us to um, sort of see the world through different eyes in a way that we carry back with us into the real world. So, you know, we can actually read about philosophy or we can do philosophy by thinking yeah. through, you know, someone else's experience. So I, I would just, I would say anything by Jane Austen is absolutely brilliant. And if you're reading it well, you understand that it has really almost, has very little to do with love and romance and marriage, although those are things that are in there and has everything to do with virtue ethics, with mm. um, societal norms, with uh, with with questioning um, received notions of what is right and proper and good. Um, Austin is a brilliant satirist and social commentator, and so any of her works would be wonderful. And I actually have an annotated. Um, text and discussion guide uh, that came out earlier this year of Sense and Sensibility. So that's a great place to start. Um, I think Charles Dickens is wonderful. Uh, and actually, I'm just, um, I am reading right now for the very first time because I, I focus on British literature. So I still, there's a lot of American literature I have to read. And I'm reading uh, John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Hmm. And it is amazing and it is really it is so filled at, with retellings of biblical stories and themes and motifs that i think that's a work that any anyone who wants to sort of have a almost it's almost like a commentary on old testament biblical narratives and so i would highly recommend that i have to be honest i don't know if i've ever thought to myself hmm i'm going to pick up a jane austen book but now I think I will. Uh, so thank you for that. Because I, I hear Jane Austen and I do think, well, I've had, you know, many women in my life who've talked about Jane Austen, but never any men. Um, but now I will. I mean, you're a woman, but still, I'm just saying like, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, challenged in that thinking. I, right now for, for my wife and I, actually, we've been 
going through Umberto Eco. Oh, and it it that is a that is a book that I mean the one we're on now where I have to have a dictionary. <laughs> I can't read it. I can't read it in my bed at night, sitting down, um, you know, just kind of processing it and just going. I have to sit down at a desk and read it and actually think through it. Otherwise, I'm going to miss everything. Well, and a, and I, a more, oh, I go would ahead. love for you to read some Jane Austen. And I, I wrote an introduction for people like you in my edition of Sense and Sensibility. So I hope you will start there. <laughs> I, I will, because I, I want to be challenged in that for sure. Um, when, when you brought up a little bit of theology and philosophy, it reminded me of something I had of my English professor, my undergrad, which was so thankful. It, it was one of the most impactful things I think I was ever taught which he looked at me because I was taking a literature class. I didn't have to. I just wanted to. And he looked at me and he said, the thing I'm going to challenge you the most with, and he says this with everyone, but not just me, but it was really impactful when he said it to me, right? Was He said, for every theology book that you pick up and read, go ahead and pick up one fiction and one nonfiction Mm. and cycle through them. Like, don't ever read two theology books in a row. Read a theology book, then go to a fiction, then go to a nonfiction, then come back to another theology book. Um, and while I, I can't say I've been perfect at that, especially in the midst of doing a PhD, um, there's really no space for non-theology <laughs> books. Um, it's been really, really beautiful uh, when in the times of life that I have been able to do that because it's constantly that my theology books have become much more beautiful to me after reading a fiction or a nonfiction book. That, I mean, that was great advice and um, yeah, good, good literary fiction. And I, you know, there's nothing wrong with a, with a beach read or a mystery novel. Those are wonderful forms of entertainment, but literary fiction does so much more than just um, tell a story, even though that's, that's enough, but it actually just helps us to, even just with a well-crafted turn of phrase or, or a well-placed word or word that's used in a different way or one that we didn't know before can actually, it actually expands our horizons and expands our, what we can see in the world because that's what all language does. Language, we are, we are creatures who are made in the image of God, a God who is the word. So when we expand our ability to um, use language in a way that enlarges and opens up our world, then we're ref- reflecting the God in whose image we were made. For, for you, if you don't mind, if it's not too personal to ask, are there any examples or times where, you know, your study of, of literature and reading and culture that, has prompted you to have a change in theological thinking that you may not have had otherwise. Yeah, well, that's, let's see. There, there are quite a few. I'll start with um, with the work of literature that um, that just that changed changed me the most when I was a college student, and that was Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, um, which is a a novel that um, exposes the faults of a romantic worldview or romanticism. And of course, as like most teenagers, I was a romantic and it just, as soon as I read that novel, I saw myself and I saw um, the fatal errors in my thinking that were causing me 
or would cause me um, quite possibly to reject the real world in front of me and all its joys and all its in its ordinariness. And it just changed everything about the way I think about the world and relationships and love um, and help me to just want to take delight in the world as it is instead of escaping into a world of fantasy that doesn't exist. And so um, that that was a turning point for me and one that helped me to really understand the world eventually through a biblical lens. And then I would say that, um, that, uh, much later in life, um, just something that deals more directly with the Christian faith is, um, the novel silence by Shisako Endo, um, which talks about, um, it 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 just it deals with um with the question of faith and what looks like possibly apostasy or blasphemy um done in the name of faith and just sort of what does it mean to actually lose your faith um it's a, it's set in set in the 17th century uh, Japan where missionaries are there and, and, and Christians are being tortured. So really, really heavy themes But at its heart, at mm-hmm. its heart is, you know, at what point or can we, what point, can, what kind of steps can we take to show that we no longer have faith in Christ? And is, is, is it what we think it is if we've grown up in kind of the altar call driven, you know, fundamentalist tradition I grew up in. So it asks some really troubling questions and doesn't give answers, but um, I think it it offers the opportunity to really mature our understanding of what faith really consists of. Yeah. And, you know, for, for me, you know, just to follow up there was that uh, the most impactful book probably in my Christian life uh, was written by Viktor Frankl, which isn't fiction, but it's not a Christian and it's just a well-crafted mm. book about searching for meaning in light of suffering. Mm. And that book for me was a turning point in even my own Christian faith and my own recognition of God that I don't think I would have ever gotten through my static reading of biblical text, mm. right? Because my at that point in life, you know, I grew up a pastor's kid went off and did, you know, a degree, at least the first one in, in, uh, theology and biblical studies and was never challenged as much in how I understand and perceive life and God until I read a book by a Jew Hmm. and all of a sudden, and not even really a self-proclaimed practicing Jew, but you know, uh, someone who survived the Holocaust. It's a, it's a great book, but my world was changed in the reading of a text that helped me better understand the text that I said that I followed. Hmm. And That's I, so I, powerful. I can't forget that. And I think it's kind of just going to highlight more in our conversation, just how important reading well is not just for thinking, but relationality with God. Hmm. Karen, one last question here, um, and maybe this kind of just plays into that that question as well. 
in what ways do you think that reading in terms of just reading anything is going to move us as a society, move us as especially Christians, if we want to sit in kind of that bubble, um, in what way can we actually look at reading in more holistic and healthy ways, just in general, before we end our time today? Well, um, you know, of course, this is what I I try to um, teach or show in my whole book on reading well, where I give some sort of reading tips on how to read better, but also uh, in the introduction, but then in each chapter, try to model um, how reading a book can um, cultivate virtue in us. Not just, it's not like a magical formula, like, oh, I pick up this, this, you know, this work of great literature and I'm going to be a better person. Um, I mean, we know that, you know, (laughs) that some of the most educated um, and artistic cultures on the face of the earth perpetrated some of the worst atrocities in human history. So, but if we, if we're doing this as, you know, as, as Christians, as putting this under submission to the Lord and asking, you know, we, we asking him to help us steward our minds as we learn to love him better with our heart, soul, and mind, um, then these gifts that we have from, from great writers using words can, awaken us and enlarge our perspective. Um, but it does take choosing books well, reading them well. Um, it's not, it, it requires an investment on our part. It's not like just sitting down and absorbing it. It's actually an exercise of our, of our intellectual and our empathic faculties, um, and so it takes a little work and investment on our part when we are reading good literature. It's not just sitting down and, and, and mindlessly watching a sitcom, but that's why it has the potential to improve um, our thinking and our perspective and our character. And so it takes some effort, uh, but there are lots of great books out there. You know, there are lots of lists out there. There are so many on there that you can surely find one that is, you know, in a style and on a subject that interests you. Um, And if there, if it, there isn't, if one you pick up isn't, put it down and pick up another one. Um, and maybe even, you know, put together an informal book club, you know, even if it's just on online or in your community, when we get back to being able to do those things, it's a wonderful thing to read in community because books are written in community too, because they, they are, um, the culmination of all of the ideas that a writer has been encountering and thinking about in his or her own life. So it just continues that act of, of thinking together. Wonderful. Karen, we've talked about some of your books. Um, any other books that you have that you think our listeners may be interested in um, to help them in reading? Well, I think all of my books are um, on my website, karenswallowprior.com. Um, based on the discussion today, I would definitely start with um, On Reading Well. For somebody who uh, is interested in something a little bit more personal and memoirish, my first book, which is my memoir, and I talk in that about the way that Madame Bovary changed my life. Um, that's booked literature in the soul of me. Um, but if you want to just pick up a great work of literature like Sense and Sensibility or Heart of Darkness, um, 
those two are out. I have great um, guides to introduce new readers to those works. And I'll have two more coming out in the spring. uh, And then two more after that as part of this uh, series of classics literature that I'll be um, introducing to new readers. Great. So keep an an eye on the website, on your website, because I'm sure it'll be there as soon as uh, possible, right? And uh, your Twitter feed as well. I suggest everyone go follow um, what's your Twitter handle so everyone can go follow you? It's just you? Uh, K-S-P-R-I-O-R, K-S Pryor. Um, and last last but not least, any we have a, we've had a lot of recommendations today because we've been talking about books, so how can we not have good recommendations? But any other recommendations, maybe non-book focused? Oh, non-book focused. I know that's um, the hard one for people who <laughs> love books so much. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, there are other things I, I love in life besides book. I would say, um, you know, uh, let's see, if you love um, very visual artistic film, one of my favorite films is Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, um, or even, well, any of his films, The Tree of Life and um, his most recent one, uh, A Hidden Life, which is actually kind of a literary film. Um, the phrase is based, comes out of a passage in George Eliot's um, Middlemarch. Um, so I would recommend those two great films. Great. Wonderful. I'm, I, I love Terrence Malick. I haven't seen the new one yet, but I'm excited to. Uh, life's just gotten a little crazy for me. Um, but Karen, thank you so much for for talking with me today, for discussing such an important subject. It's been hugely beneficial for me, and I'm sure for our listeners. So I'm just so thankful that you would do this with us. Well, thank you for having me. It was a delight. Mm-hmm.